Welcome to Scripps Talks. My name is Bob Stewart. I'm the director of the Journalism School for a little bit longer. And today we have the pleasure of, or the task, if you will, of taking on the question of ethics and the coverage of COVID-19. And with me today are two friends and experts on this, on the subject of journalism ethics. I have Andy Alexander, who is a Scripps Howard visiting professional in the Scripps College of Communication and has been teaching an ethics course in the School of Journalism for several years. And also Kevin Smith, who uh, even has ethics in his Twitter handle. He is the director of the Kiplinger Program in Public Affairs Journalism, which not too long ago joined the fold of the Scripps School of Journalism. So uh, Kevin and Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Ethics is a topic that it's always, you know, if it's not the first topic of conversation, it's the second or third topic of conversation around journalism. Probably the first topic these days is will media organizations financially survive? But the question of, uh, of fake news is never far off the list, and that's clearly a, an ethics question. But there are many other ethics questions that come to mind around the coverage of COVID-19. And frankly, what other story is there right now? This is pretty much uh, story one, two, and three. Let me ask you, first of all, to both give the mainstream media a grade, how they're doing so far as far as ethical coverage. And then we'll get into some of the context, but just a, just a quick hit grade. First of all, I think we have to define mainstream media, because I, I raise that because I think often in the public's mind, it's difficult, understandably, for them to define what is mainstream media. And are we talking about national outlets? Are we talking about uh, regional, local outlets? Broadly speaking, however, I would give uh, very high marks for several reasons. One is, I think that the news media have reacted quickly to this under very trying circumstances. It's the economic prospects for newspapers particularly, and I mention newspapers because they provide the bulk of original reporting at the local level. Uh, They've been in financial peril even before the health crisis. And when it hit and the bottom fell out of uh, the advertising uh, revenue streams, these people in many cases are trying to do their jobs while also not knowing whether they will have a job tomorrow. That's a pretty tough thing to do. So I would give them very, very high remark, or remarks, and I think last week's Pew Research Center generally reflected that. It, it was roughly two-thirds of Americans said that they thought the news media generally was giving them the information they needed accurately on the coronavirus. One of the things I think we need to make sure that we differentiate when we're talking about mainstream media is that people tend to judge all media by the largest outlets and how the outlets are doing it. So what's going on inside the Beltway and how the large outlets, the NBCs, the CBSs, the CNNs, Washington Post, and how they're doing. But outside that Beltway, there's a lot of newspapers, not as many as there used to be, but there's a lot of newspapers doing local coverage. You know, I picked up the Columbus Dispatch yesterday and went through for the second week I've been doing counting how many COVID-19 stories are within the Sunday paper and they're averaging over 30 stories. Now those aren't all locally produced, probably roughly half of those are. So I think when we're talking about the media in general, Andy makes a great point. 
a lot of these staffs are decimated in terms of the number of people that are doing it. They're being asked to do three times as much work with half the staff in some cases. If they're lucky, it's half the staff. So if we're grading the media across the spectrum, I would simply say that I think that they're doing a very admirable job. We have made mistakes. The mistakes are glaring sometimes. With so much attention being on the coverage of this, every little stub of our toe gets magnified. And I think that, as someone had mentioned last week when I was having this conversation, these are the times when we can't make mistakes and the mistakes that we do make get amplified. But overall, I think media is doing an admirable job, as Andy would say. Let's get into some of the the challenges that uh, media outlets have faced. And and let's start with the big guns, you know, the the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the NPRs, all of the media outlets that would be represented in a White House press corps. One of the big topics that we've seen discussed time and again is whether the White House briefings around the COVID-19 task force should be covered live or not, because we've seen them devolve very often into non-COVID-19 related topics. And uh, my impression is that even though these have kind of wound down at this point, uh, that people were divided about this. The experts, so to speak, were quite divided. How, how did the two of you come down on live coverage of the task force? My view changed over time on this. My initial instinct was whenever the president speaks at a time of national crisis, you need to cover it uh, live and um, in its entirety. But as you mentioned, the briefings evolved, and they became, first of all, very, very long. And a high percentage of the content, and many of them, had nothing to do with the health crisis. They ended up being political. I, I, I felt personally they became replacements for the president's in-person campaign rallies, which he likes very much. Over time, I came to think that they have, obviously they need to be covered but perhaps not covered live. They need to be reported like any other news story. I also developed some other views on this. I felt that the questions could have been directed to medical experts rather than the president. It gets to a matter of credibility. And I think an additional problem that the media, particularly the White House coverage, was confronting was what happens when the president states live a known falsehood or is promoting an unproven and potentially harmful remedy for the coronavirus. So for all those reasons, my thinking evolved, obviously has to be covered, but should be covered as a news event. I probably was one of the last holdouts, believing that the president of the United States having a press conference warranted direct live coverage. However, as Andy had indicated, it had devolved into less of uh, an informational press conference into something that resembled more of a self-grandizing rally and also turned into oftentimes an opportunity to spend time bashing the media. There was such a division about this. There were a lot of people in the public who don't particularly understand how journalism works and why it's important to have direct coverage. In that respect, there are people saying, well, you just can't do this. Just cut him off. He lies all the time and you you can't do that. And, And there were a number of journalists believing that and saying that. And I think that there is value in having 
live coverage, and it was important for us to do that. But as Andy had said, and and I agree, I think that we reached a point where it had outlived its usefulness, and it was becoming something other than that. And there are alternatives. There are fallback means that we can accurately cover his press conference without giving him uh, live wall-to-wall coverage for in excess of two hours every day. I think a lot of the debate in the industry came down to, uh, well, what's our role? Our role is to reflect reality. One view of reflecting reality is let him be on live, and if he looks like an idiot, uh, people will see him as an idiot. On the other hand, if he looks brilliant, they will see his brilliance. I think where, for the reasons uh, Kevin and I have both mentioned, I think that eventually the decision was made you can still reflect reality but you don't have to do it for two hours and you don't have to do it live. And in the meantime, sometime, t- sometimes giving out bogus health information that might be on, a bit on the dangerous side, which is another aspect of this. People who don't understand journalism or how interviews work don't understand there is more nuance to interviewing people or having press conferences than the public is aware of. There are times when you put a camera in someone's face, you have them tell you live what they think. Even if you know they're lying, there's a value in recording that for posterity. The person is now on the record having said X, Y, Z. Now, I'm wondering, and the last thing that he said with regards to the ultraviolet light and disinfectant, you couldn't adequately substitute reporting for actually watching that in live, real time. So there are values to that, despite the fact that that was the most horrendous advice that you could give, where the medical experts were literally standing on the sidelines, almost visibly groaning. There's value in knowing that you've caught that live and you've shown that. When we see these live briefings and we see reporters addressing the president with what sometimes is a really tough question, we we know that some people in the audience might cringe a bit. And we know that the, the White House position seems to be that if you are asking a really tough question, that it, by definition, is a nasty question. And I, I wonder if if perhaps there are times when journalists go across the line, or are they not being uh, direct enough? My view always is, and what I tell journalism students, is that during times of crisis, uh, whether it's 9-11 or the health crisis or whatever, that it's actually your patriotic duty as a journalist to ask tough questions, and it is exactly what the founders envisioned. Now, do is the framing of some of those questions uh, sometimes does it uh, come across as unnecessarily snarky, nasty? Probably. I think something that um, journalists, particularly TV journalists, should always avoid is if the president picks on you and says it was a nasty question and berates you, do not get in an argument with him. You're there just to ask the questions. We have an opportunity because we know the public sometimes thinks the questions are nasty. We have an opportunity to explain why we are asking those questions or the way that we are asking them, why we ask it in a certain way or someone follows up in a certain way, why that was important. And I think simply explaining that we are better as a country when we press our government officials for answers, I think that would be helpful. 
the way you approach questioning someone at a press conference is going to be different than the way you would approach them in a one-on-one conversation. And while that sounds extremely obvious on the surface, I think a lot of times that's lost on the public. There are times when I sit and listen to these press conferences and often think, well, these questions are kind of obvious and they're repetitive. And yeah, sometimes these reporters get snarky and so forth, but And it's not always necessary, but the reality is in that given situation and in the environment that's created by that, sometimes that particular line of questioning and the methodology used in questioning is going to be different. And I agree with Andy that it doesn't serve any purpose for you to get into a snarky exchange with that individual, no matter how much you'd like to do it, no matter how many times that person's pushed your button. It's just unprofessional and it doesn't serve an end. What about local coverage? And the coverage I want to talk about specifically would be coverage of these relatively small, and I'm making a judgment here, I understand, but it's a podcast and uh, we are want to do that, relatively small protests at state houses that for a young journalist observing this or in the middle of it, it may seem loud, it may seem boisterous, it may seem big, but when you take the 30,000 foot view, it's pretty small and it perhaps even um, has an agenda. How, How do you think local media across the country have managed to get their footing when it comes to correctly or ethically covering these protests? Let's start with you, Kevin. I think back on my times as a reporter and the times I've had to cover protests, we're in a different age now with social media amplifies everything and just makes things a lot different than what it was 20 years ago. People who are going to be opposed to the protesters are going to find a reason to blame the media for giving them value and error. I'll go back again a couple weeks ago. I looked at the Columbus Dispatch 30 stories about the coronavirus. They had one story about the protesters. It was a front page photo, and then they had a story that goes with it. There were a large number of people who were blaming the dispatch for focusing all of its attention on a small group of people, when in fact reality represented something different. There are protesters, and they are in front of the capital of the state, and regardless of how you feel about them or what they're saying, that warrants news coverage to what level of news coverage is debatable, but you can't simply ignore that fact. And the times that they come out there and what they say, again, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, there's value in covering that. We have well reached a point in society where we are simply only comfortable with hearing news that suits our predisposed viewpoints, whether it's a political or cultural or whatever. Having said that, at least in Ohio, I think the media has done a fairly uh, reputable job of uh, covering them without going overboard and spending a great deal of time giving them more coverage than what's warranted. I would generally agree with that. I think the context is really important whenever you're doing something like this. What interested me about these protests and the coverage of it is that in many cases, the size of the crowds was relatively small. But I think that's a little bit tricky for the media because uh, what I would be looking for is, and I know most news organizations were, is what other evidence do you have to back up the fact that these protesters represent a fairly large group? 
And surveys tell us that there are a lot of people out there that want the government to move more quickly to reopen on some basis. So that's one consideration in how much prominence you give to the coverage. Beyond that, I think there are ethically responsible ways to do this. So, for instance, if you are a local television station and covering this, I think it's important to show the full crowd, not just close-ups, but the context of it. Secondly, in some instances, we saw protesters show up that were heavily armed. I immediately wondered, are they really protesting the lockdown or are they simply making a statement for some other issue? It was several days later that the Washington Post had a very good story that basically said a lot of these protesters have really no connection to protesting how this is hurting businesses or whatever, but they were making a statement. Well, that's a context that is also very important. Obviously, it's hard to see all the local coverage, but I think generally it's been put in context, particularly when national news has showed it. I think it's been pretty good context. To me, one of the most fascinating things about COVID-19 from a journalistic standpoint is that journalists are just as subject to getting the virus as anybody else. The finances of the media industry have taken a huge hit. So they're suffering the same way all other businesses are struggling and suffering, which creates an extraordinarily empathetic moment for journalists. I I kind of equate it to a combat photographer who's in the trenches, who's subjecting him or herself to the same dangers as are the troops, you know, fully engaged in battle. And that does create a tremendous amount of empathy. And it's as if the journalists are embedded in this very story. And I wonder if you think that that has created any particular ethical challenges per se, or is it harder to remain objective? Well, I think a certain amount of empathy is required of journalists, no matter what they're covering. So I think in this particular case, as you have well described, journalists are in danger of getting this. They're out there covering this, and then they have families to come home to, newsrooms they have to manage. I guess most of them are working remotely, however. But we expect a certain amount of empathy from journalists in order to do a good job. I certainly think that this is something that strikes a little closer to home than most cases. If you're interviewing someone who's experienced a homicide within their family, you have to handle that with understanding. In this particular case, they're in this together. So it has value to that. But also, I think it creates a a great deal of unknown, creates anxiety. I can perfectly understand why journalists are having some not necessarily post-traumatic because they're in the middle of it, but this can cause certain amount of issues with them regarding how they cover this. I think there's value in that, but I also think that from what I've seen, most journalists have tried to continue to make the strong argument that they need to remain objective and cover this uh, thoroughly without letting their own fears dictate their coverage. I'll go back to something I said earlier about uh, the difficulty of being a journalist, particularly at a local newspaper right now. I would say that those reporters are uniquely sensitized to report on what's happening with small businesses, with people who are economically on the margins. It's because these reporters don't know if they will have jobs. They are experiencing the same thing. 
Within the last week, I was interviewed by a Columbus Dispatch reporter for a story he was doing on the anniversary of Kent State. I was asking him how it was going, and he was telling me, well, I've been working from home for you know X number of weeks. Then he said, I'm, I'm with the Gannett chain. I just came off my two-week furlough. I'm watching all the industry blogs to see if I'm going to be employed tomorrow. That's a lot of anxiety, and it, it does put you in the place of understanding what's happening to a small business owner who's wondering how they're going to keep their business going or feed their family. I'm not sure the public appreciates that or cares. I'm, I'm not sure journalists should care whether they care. We try not to be special people, although journalists, I think, occupy a special place in society. One offshoot of this is that news operations will change fundamentally. There are different workflows that come out of this. I was sort of struck by a conversation I had with an old Washington Post friend who said he has been told that he cannot come back into the newsroom until at least the end of July. And then I noticed the New York Times the other day said that they are not going to have people coming back on a regular basis until at least after Labor Day. Things are going to change in, in the news gathering process. Do you think that poses any particular ethical issue as far as journalists being somewhat isolated from each other, at least, you know, the newsroom aspect of their normal day-to-day work has been put on hold for quite a long time now. There is a lot of rapid-fire, back-and-forth trading information, rumors, chit-chat that is actually informing your story, that it's very hard to replicate that when you're working remotely. Now, on the other hand, you're dealing with your news sources who are working remotely, too, so that's changing, too. I think there's value in having your comrades around you, but also I think the relationship you have with your editor has to be a bit hamstrung by working remotely. There's some value to having that opportunity to get feedback in real time on a story. As Andy said, I don't know that there's some ethical issues in there, other than that by working remotely, standards are relaxed in such a way that maybe editing or evaluating stories and those kinds of things have uh, slid a little bit in terms of what actually takes place in the newsroom versus what works remotely. And as a result, some things are are not vetted, perhaps the way they should. For the most part, they've worked around those kinds of issues. I want to pivot to a very different topic now, and that is the coverage of the science and the medicine and of the treatments that we've seen, whether we think you know, the media are doing a good ethical job of giving us information that is scientifically sound. We know this is a moving target, and we know that there's a lot of speculation a lot of wild speculation, I would say. The politicians might have one message and the medical experts have perhaps a very different message. How have the media done up till now in vetting and measuring themselves and their own excitement You know, as a possible cure seems to be around the corner or a vaccine? This is where I would give the media not low marks, but not as high as in other areas. It's a difficult balance, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, we have a world right now that is desperate for any hopeful news about medical breakthroughs or new studies. But we also have a public that you have to be very careful what you tell them. So if you, if, if someone says bleach is the answer, you don't want people drinking bleach. You know, you've got to put this in context. When we see reports on new drugs that are showing promise, it has to be hedged maybe more strongly than it would normally to say that this is still in the process, 
It's shown some initial results. And then I would say it's very important to rely on other scientists, not just those who are promoting a specific potential remedy, but others who have different views. Here's one interesting thing that came out of last week's Pew Research Center, and I, I think Pew Research does terrific reporting. They sort of look by profession in trust levels, and yes, journalists are being judged better in the coronavirus situation, but we're still down there with lawyers generally. But by profession, the public, 83% have a high degree of confidence in scientists as well as with military and school principals, things like that. But I was focused on the scientists. So when you are turning to people who have a high level of respect, that I think probably translates to your public on some level of saying, look, it's science-based. These people are really, they know what they're talking about. But I think we have to be very, very cautious. I think when we're talking about this subject, there are two distinct areas that we have to look at with regards to information. The first is the information that typically is on social media, and a lot of that is driven by the public. And we could do an entire podcast just talking about the volumes of disinformation that your friends and my friends and everyone else seems to circulate on social media and the problems with that. Now, how does that become a journalist problem is because a lot of times journalists spend too much of their time having to chase these kinds of stories and debunk them. I don't think a lot of people understand or give journalists the credit that they need because there's a lot of debunking of stories that cuts into original content. The other part is when the journalists are doing original reporting. I read upwards of 20 coronavirus stories a day from all news sources all over the world. I think it's important for us to realize, and it's important for journalists to make this point in their stories, that this virus, as far as we know at this point, this virus has only existed for less than six months. And there is a lot that we don't know about this virus. And there's a lot that the scientific community doesn't know about this virus. And I can read stories from scientists or researchers that are taking place in Europe, and they will make definitive statements about this virus that will be contradicted by scientists and medical experts in this country. That's not to say that the journalists are doing a bad job. They're reporting directly from the medical professionals and what they're seeing at this time. And oftentimes those things don't jibe. That makes it really difficult. So I think what is important for journalists to do put it in context in their stories and say, there's a lot that still isn't known about this virus. And while this research is taking place, it's not definitive. It's not proven. It's at this point, it's going through trials. And I think it's important for them to constantly remind the public that even the medical experts don't have a definitive handle on every aspect of this and articulate it that way so that they understand that there's a lot we still don't know and the public still has to learn. Kevin makes a really good point there, and I, I think one example of, uh, of the value of medical experts as opposed to politicians talking about this is you saw it in the briefings in the White House, uh, the number of times that the president would say something and reporters would then turn to Tony Fauci or Deborah Birx, the medical experts there, in their cautious ways, they would offer a science-based answer 
that was at odds with what the president was saying. I would say both of those people have a very high level of credibility. What I liked about them, both of them, is that I think they are very clear-headed and articulate scientists. And so the more we can rely on people like that, I think the better in terms of how we're informing the public. What do you think about journalists who have contracted the virus telling their story? And, and a real high-profile example of this was Chris Cuomo, who kept reporting throughout his illness and probably is still doing it today. At, at whatever point you listen to this podcast down the road, he may still be doing it. Some people call it showboating. Others thought it was a very useful first-person accounting I just wonder what you think about journalists putting themselves in a, in a kind of a spotlight like that. I'm not necessarily against it, but I think there's a line. And the Chris Cuomo thing got to be a little bit much for me. When I teach journalism, I always tell young journalists, the story is not about you. Now, there are times when you telling your story can be helpful and informative. But if it edges over into something that is seen as good for ratings or it is too much about you or you're not imparting new meaningful information, I'd say that's probably a time to call a halt to it. It depends on the methodology, you know, the way you go about doing it. We go back to the question about empathy. What's more empathetic than having a journalist with the disease explain to the public? But I think it crosses a line when it becomes a bit about ratings, as Andy said, and becomes a little bit of a showboat. So I think we have to be careful how we go about doing that. It seems to me that we are seeing something that we see in a lot of coverage with respect to disenfranchised communities not getting as much coverage as a celebrity who contracts COVID-19 I'm as guilty as anybody else. If it's the celebrity or the musician who I'm you know, a fan of, then that's a huge story for me. But there are a lot of people who have suffered and died who aren't getting their stories told. And I, I suppose it's just a question of space and scale, what can be done. But are the media focused enough on some of the inequality of this virus, the, the tendency that it attacks people with some of the illnesses uh, surrounding poverty. There's a story in the Charleston, West Virginia Gazette today talking about a small rural black community that coronavirus swept through their small Baptist church and devastated an entire congregation. And it went almost a month without being reported. And I think that goes to what you're saying about how we have disenfranchised certain groups of people in our coverage. Part of that can be blamed just logistically on the fact that we just simply don't have enough people in newsrooms. But part of it is goes to a bigger problem, and that's one that's been around for the ages, and that is, is that newspapers, TV stations tend to not cover minority communities unless there's something significant happening in there, oftentimes violence, murder, crime. Oftentimes when we don't, those things don't occur, they get ignored. And I think that that's a historical problem that journalists have in covering those disenfranchised minority communities. And I think it's exhibiting itself again with regards to the coronavirus. When we talk about bias as an ethical issue, it is so often in journalism framed in ideological terms. But bias in favor of people who are comfortable at the expense of those who operate on the margins, that's a form of bias too. 
or bias toward people who look like us, if you happen to be Caucasian, as opposed to those who are in minority communities or of different cultures, that's a form of bias. Even in good times, this is a huge issue for journalism that we need to pay attention to. It also speaks to the importance of diversity in newsrooms. Diversity is not about numbers. It is about accurately reflecting the people that you're serving. So that's a big issue. And then Kevin also touched on the practical problem right now. I think news organizations in my reading are starting to come up with these stories, but I have some sympathy with them because when you're operating remotely and you can't be out there roaming your communities, it's pretty hard to get into those nursing homes or to learn about those stories that are adversely affecting certain cultural communities. So it's a double challenge in this sense. There are obviously some media outlets that we wouldn't necessarily define as mainstream, but they have large audiences. They have commentators who don't necessarily see themselves as journalists. You could argue that they are putting out some very bad information, and it is probably tinged with a political overtone as well. I wonder what standard we should expect them to be bound by when it comes to ethics? Or is that just unrealistic and naive that we would have that expectation? I think it's uh, unrealistic and naive that <laughs> we would have that expectation. Part of the problem that you're raising here is even before the coronavirus, I think we in the news media have done a pretty lousy job of explaining not only how we do our jobs, but even more fundamentally, what is news reporting as opposed to opinion, and who is a journalist? We don't want to license journalists. We don't want to prescribe the attributes you need, but we've done a lousy job of explaining the difference between the editorial page and the news pages. Or I think people are confused by if they watch Judy Woodruff on the PBS NewsHour, which is reliably playing it straight down the middle, and then they switch over to Sean Hannity on Fox or Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, both ideologues, I'm really not certain how many people truly understand the difference between them. And even if they understand that one is, broadly speaking, representing opinion as opposed to news, I think within organizations, it becomes confusing to the public as to whether these people talk. So, for instance, if you take someone like Andrea Mitchell, who anchors the noon straight newscast on MSNBC, and then at the end, she throws it to Reverend Sharpton. I think that people, in many cases, wonder, well, are they in the same newsroom? Are they sharing information? And this becomes more problematic when you have straight news reporters who are on contract on TV programs who are then offering their opinions. I have no problem with them offering analysis or insight on the reporting. But the minute they start saying, I think that, I think that, then I think we're in trouble. I would like to think that we could come to an agreement on ethical standards that could be adhered to by the reporter in the field to the person who's sitting in front of a camera with six million people watching them, whether they are commentators or they are journalists working a story, that we can come to some understanding that there are some ethical conduct that we must all adhere to. If you're going to be in this profession, if you're going to call yourself a journalist, then there are standards that you have to meet. If you venture in this, whether you're a blogger who's sitting on the fringe and you decide you want to call yourself a journalist, well, 
we're not licensing people, as Andy said. So you have what amounts to free admission into the profession, but there are standards you have to meet. And while I agree with Andy, we probably can't realistically expect certain commentators to adhere to ethical standards, it doesn't mean that we can't continue to pressure them and do a better job of defining the difference between a Sean Hannity and a Judy Woodruff. And I think Andy's right. We just haven't done a particularly good job of that. And in a lot of cases, I think we've given up. I think the public has made up its mind that they paint everyone with the same broad brush. We need to do a better job. And in some cases, I think we sort of relinquish that task of trying to make a difference and say, what does it matter anyway, unfortunately. I think a key in all this is transparency and and how you explain your news process and how your news organization works and the firewalls that are between opinion and the news side. When I worked for the Washington Post as the ombudsman, sort of an internal critic, I would hear from many members of the public who would say, well, look, I just read this news story that has this set of facts. And then I read an editorial on the editorial page that has different facts. Don't those people talk to each other? And I would always have to explain to them, no, they never talk to each other. In fact, they typically hate each other. They're at odds. There's a big firewall. But most people do not understand that distinction. And I have sympathy for them not understanding it because over the years, specifically in newspapers, we basically went through a long period where we gave the news and said, take it or leave it. This is our product. Well, now there's a lot of competition and there are a lot of different variations. And so we, in traditional media, need to do a much better job of saying, these are our standards, this is how we operate, and this is how we are different than Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow. I came up through community journalism, so I worked at small dailies. We had an editor at the last paper I worked who was an old school guy from the Pittsburgh area, the Pittsburgh media area. He never wrote an editorial about anything that he didn't call the reporter into the office and sit down and say, hey, I read your story. Can I dig a little deeper with you and ask you some more questions about this? Because I'm going to comment on this. I found myself oftentimes in there having conversations with him about the story beyond what I was able to report the space would provide me to report. And I had an absolute great deal of respect for him because while it was important that I got my facts right, despite the fact that he was just simply writing a commentary, his commentary was going to be based on those facts as well, and the things that we knew. And I think that therein lies, and that's a microcosm of a bigger issue, and that is even if you're a Sean Hannity or a Rachel Maddow or anyone else who's providing endless commentary, That commentary should be based upon facts. It should not be based upon conspiracy theories and a lot of other muddled information that's existing out there. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Let's talk a little bit about some advice that you would give journalists. And let's start with that. Is that something that should be of best practices from an ethical standpoint? Is that something that SPJ or a pointer or others you know, should issue as a best practices for people producing commentary? There, there are references in SPJ's ethics code uh, about this, although it doesn't go into great detail. But it does 
reflect that commentary should be based upon factual information and that one needs to adhere to the, the certain kinds of standards of independence and harm and truthfulness that goes into story creating, that commentary should also adhere to those standards as well. I think most ethics codes do address this very explicitly. And of course, most reputable news organizations have ethics codes that you can find on their websites, and then with industry groups like SPJ, you can find them very easily. I am in favor of going much further than that. So for instance, when we say this is our policy on how we handle anonymous sources, I think it's not enough to say to our reading public or our viewing public anymore that we will be careful in taking the word of anonymous sources and we will vet them. I think people want to know much more. I think, uh, and this is something that I would encourage journalists and journalism organizations, news organizations, to explain more in stories. So if you have a story that's based primarily on a killer anonymous source, I think it's important to tell the public, did you go to the source or did they come to you? How long have you known the source? Why is this source in a position to know something as opposed to someone else? How many times have we read stories to talk about a, quote, West Wing source. Was well, that the janitor that, that empties the, uh, the trash can, or is it someone that is actually in meetings with the President of the United States? Going far beyond ethics codes, I think we really need to be completely transparent and explanatory in how we gather the news and how we present it. Now, Andy, when you said a killer source, you, you, you didn't necessarily mean a, a source who has committed a, a crime. You just... I, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> In the interest of transparency, I met someone who was a very, very good source. I'm listening to Andy offer that explanation, and I'm kind of laughing to myself. And I, I agree with him, but could you imagine what the size of the Washington Post would look like tomorrow if it actually had to write an explanation for every anonymous source that it used in a story? I mean, the size of the paper would double. It would, and I, I think you have to use discretion on stories like that. I, I would limit that to stories where the anonymous source is the primary source for it. But I think on important stories like that, the public should know. Now, routinely, the Post uses an excessive number of anonymous sources, but I also have a lot of sympathy for them in the era of Trump because uh, whistleblowers, people who risk their jobs, their livelihood to tell the press something, uh, they have very little protection now, even though laws exist. So it's it's necessary for many of them to be anonymous. And I agree it could be cumbersome, but I think for the big important stories, telling as much as you can would be helpful. I think it's important for the public to know and the listeners of this podcast to understand that the use of anonymous sources inside, so for instance, the Capitol Beltway, is completely different than the way anonymous sources get processed probably across the rest of the country. I worked in newspapers for 15 years, and I can count on one hand the number of times I used an anonymous source. And that had to be extremely vetted by the editors and a lot of questions were asked, the kinds of questions, that, you know, what's the motivation? I always taught my students that when someone tells you they want to be anonymous, there are two questions that should immediately come to mind. And the first one is, what is the motivation of this person for going on the record or going off the record of being anonymous? 
And second, is there someplace else I can find this information that will allow me to tell the story without using an anonymous source? Again, outside the Beltway, I think that we process anonymous sources a bit differently, a lot differently than what takes place inside the Beltway for the reasons that Andy explained also. And in particular, I think it's more so with this particular administration. Now, let me comment as someone who has spent his career in Washington. You're absolutely right about that, Kevin. And, you know, um, aside from the, uh, the anonymous sources that we must use here for the reasons I stated, we basically grant anonymity at the drop of a hat. It's just too easy to be an anonymous source. We set in Washington journalism, in my opinion, a terrible example for journalism across the country. We could learn from the Columbus dispatches and the Des Moines registers on their really Spartan use of anonymous sources. You don't have to use as many anonymous sources as you do. It certainly seems to eat into the credibility of the coverage. I think savvy readers want to know who a source is. If you are constantly using an anonymous source, the question becomes, in the public's mind is why can't you get anyone to talk to you on the record when you have other reporters working within your paper or your newsroom who don't seem to have a problem with this? Is there something specifically that I need to know about you that every time you write a story, you can't get through it unless someone refuses to speak on the record? And I think that begins to call into question the credibility of the reporter, and that translates into credibility for the outlet as well. So anonymous sources need to be handled on an individual basis, and they really should be vetted uh, a lot more than than what, like Andy explained, that they do in uh, Washington, D.C., and, and they do outside that beltway. It's a pervasive problem in Washington, and it also uh, it's interesting to me how often administrations complain about anonymous sources, and yet the administrations and agencies are guilty of the same thing. The number of times that they hold what are called SAO briefings, that senior administration official briefings, where you are not allowed to identify the person briefing, even sometimes 50, 60, 70 reporters in a room, you have to identify them as a senior administration official. So why does that happen? It happens because very often they want deniability if they say something that uh, is controversial. But more often it's part of a strategy to control the flow of news. So you may get a briefing by the Secretary of State that's considered on background, meaning that you can't identify them by, by name. And the reason for that is that the Secretary of State is briefing in advance of the President going on camera and saying something. Well, we are not the PR agents for any government official. The Washington news media, they struggle with this for decades of how you fight back against this. And I think more group action is important to try to counter this sort of odious practice that has gone on forever. The last area that I'd like to have the two of you weigh in on is the area of potential bailout money that could be coming to journalism organizations from the government. I mean, these are businesses, obviously, but this topic seems fraught with a lot of difficulty. So, you know, whether this actually happens or not, you know, if it were to come to pass, 
what would your advice be to news organizations that clearly are struggling financially and you know might even not make it but for a bailout this is a really tough area i had expressed to andy in previous conversations my reluctance to get behind this for the obvious reasons the um the potential downside to this uh, of losing a sense of independence and creating conflicts here there's always a reason to be cautious when you allow the government a foot in the door of the profession and i worry about that having said that i'm not 100 percent convinced that it's a bad idea what does bother me is that there hasn't been a great deal of discussion about this I belong to two of the largest journalism organizations in the country, and there has been virtually no conversation within those organizations of whether newspapers or other outlets should be taking government-funded money. I find that problematic. I think that that's something that needs to happen. There needs to be a lot of discourse about this from a lot of different voices and opinions. But this happened so quickly. It's just as if everyone just immediately got on board with this and said, we need to do this. And I understand the, the urgency here to how this bailout money gets opened up and then quickly gets consumed. But there certainly needs to be a lot more discussion in the profession about this than what's taken place. So I think a starting point for this is what is a bailout? In practical terms, any discussion, any proposals about direct subsidies to news organizations is probably a non-starter in Congress because of the political situation, the extreme viewpoints, the ideologies. It's just practically not going to happen. Kevin's right. It gets a little bit more complicated when you get into different gradations of government help. So if it is payroll protection, that's a matter of discussion. On, on, the, on one side, it's the fact that news organizations are businesses. Someone has to pay for journalism. So is that a bailout? In my opinion, it is not. It is something that is commonly available, not exclusively to news organizations. It's available to many, many different types of companies, some very, very small, some a little bit larger. I view that as almost a tax incentive in the, in the same category. Similarly, I think there has to be discussion about are there ways that government could provide financial aid indirectly that benefit news organizations. One that I've toyed around with that I think would be worth discussing is one of the big problems we have at the local level with news organizations is how do we attract reporters to go to a very small community like Athens, Ohio, and make a very, very low wage but serve the public as a reporter. Well, one way you might do that is Congress could authorize loan forgiveness for student loans for journalism students that commit to four or five years. That is not something that is unique to journalism. It's done for doctors, various professions, even lawyers going into impoverished areas. So those are the types of discussions, going to Kevin's point, that I think they're proposals we ought to be thinking about and lots and lots of discussion. Uh, and then the final thing I would say is whatever we do, there has to be total transparency about what we're getting from the government, if anything at all. And I assume neither of you necessarily has any problem with reporters on their social media platforms urging anybody who's following them to subscribe to 
their media outlet or to any media outlet. I mean, it's it's not something I think we would have seen 20 years ago, but it seems it seems like we see this all the time now, where reporters almost it almost appears that they're on their knees begging people to subscribe to their outlet. Yeah, I don't have any problem with that at all. I I think it's uh, it's more urgent now, but. Hey, when I started in newspapers, we used to take out full-page ads urging our readers, hey, please subscribe, we're important to you. And that was when we were making tons of money. Well, right now, we're not. So if you're proud of your product and you're, uh, and you're being open about the pride and wanting people to see your work and to support your journalism, I, I see no problem with it. I don't have a problem with it either. I do think that it's misleading <laughs> as someone who has managed a newsroom and a newsroom budget and sat at a daily newspaper finance, I can tell you that the issue isn't with subscriptions, the issue is with advertising dollars. Right. And to suggest that, you know, if you have 2,000 new subscriptions at $300 a year, that's not going to make up a lot of ad revenue. Where they're really hurting is in the ad dollars. And... Most newspapers are not going to get 6 million new subscribers like the New York Times. So if you pick up a few hundred, it's not going to make a significant impact on the bottom line. What really needs to happen is you need to have display advertising. And so it's it's a bit of a, I guess, a sidestep around the real issue. And I think that really journalists ought to be a little more understanding of that, or at least understand the the finances of newspapers. I'm going to wrap this up by opening the mics up to anything that I haven't asked you about that concerns you or advice that you have for journalists. Anything about ethics and journalism and COVID-19 that you'd like to wrap up with? When you are working with the experts, I think it's important for them to clarify and for you to amplify that, that there is still a lot that we don't know about this virus. It's almost disclaimers in your story to suggest that, I mean, when you look at what has taken place in the past, whether we don't need to wear a mask to we should be wearing a mask. I mean, a lot, a lot has shifted over that time. And I think it's important that we understand that a lot will probably shift as we move forward. So anytime we're reporting, even from the professionals, is that we need to qualify it by saying that this is the what we know at this point. And I think that helps the public understand and regain some confidence in the press and also some confidence in the medical experts. I think something that I, I would uh, say to young journalists is uh, when, when you look at this story and the number of times that nurses and frontline medical workers are being lauded for their devotion, dedication in a time like this, and the number of times you hear them say, well, this is what I signed up for. I would say there's a parallel for journalism. This is such an enormous consequential story that one way to view it journalistically is this is showtime. This is why you went into the business. We try to inform the public we provide a foundation of accurate information upon which you can have civil discourse and civic discourse. And it's never been more important than now, even when we're facing such an uncertain future, because when people have facts that allow them to debate the issues and come out with the best possible answers, 
we're better as a society. We're better as a democracy. It's a difficult time, especially to be a journalist, if you don't know if you're going to be working tomorrow or the next week, but it's a great time to do what you got in the business for, and that is to inform the public. I think about young journalists starting out covering COVID-19. There may never be as big a story in their careers as a global pandemic. I would agree. Andy Schreit. Kevin Smith from the Kiplinger Program. Andy Alexander, Scripps Howard Visiting professional in the Scripps College. Thank you both for being on Scripps Talks today and talking about a topic which could probably go on and on and on, and I'm sure in many forms it will continue. Thank you.